Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're bringing you a show which I have to admit we await with mouth-watering anticipation every single year. We call it Down the Hatch. It's our annual celebration of the region's food scene, an hour of radio just bursting with sweet and savory morsels of gastronomic goodness, like the most decadent of donuts with a dairy and egg-free twist. I think a lot of vegans miss comfort foods, and this is just one of those guilty pleasures. And the gooey, tangy condiment of choice in the nation's capital. Once you taste it, you can't get away from it. Plus, we'll raise a glass or two of the Brazilian liquor that's been shaking things up this soccer-crazed summer and the distilled spirit that's making a comeback in the state of Maryland. So you can get that sweet, spicy grain characteristic, slight floral notes, as well as a little bit of a sweetness and sort of a more mellow note from the corn. But our first course on today's Down the Hatch show is something we can really chew on. Hi, may I help you? Quite literally. Hi there. Could I please get an everything bagel with low-fat plain cream cheese and... Toasted? No, thank you. We're talking about the bagel. Do you like bagels? I love bagel. I'm three-quarters of Jewish. <laughs> Yo Sup Lee emigrated from Korea in 1986. Here in Rockville, Maryland, he owns Bagel Town Deli, where he sells 18 kinds of bagels, along with sandwiches like the mitzvah and the yenta. For actually, my clientele is a lot of from the Potomac. So they are Jewish, and they always say, hey, Joe, you're not Jewish yet? So I always said, I'm almost... <laughs> See, it was Polish Jews who first brought the bagel to America. First stop, New York City. By 1900, these immigrants had opened nearly six dozen bagel bakeries on the Lower East Side alone. Fast forward more than a century, though, and not only have bagels spread across the country, but from plain to poppy to everything, they're being peddled by everyone. And here in the D.C. region, you'll find them in more and more shops owned by members of the 60,000-strong Korean community, like Yosep Lee, who purchased Bagel Town Deli from its original Jewish owner in 2007. Why did you go into the bagel business? I mean, actually, it's not especially uh, I decided to the bagel business. I've been doing the beer, wine, and convenient business 20 years in D.C. He even became head of the Korean American Grocers Association of Washington, or CAGRO. But after two decades, he wanted something more. Korean people is very demanding and diligent. We don't have much patience to wait till to we get to build up our things. So after we do certain things, we not satisfy our status right now. Not unlike their bagel baking predecessors, he says. Same as the Jewish people over here for that. And first time, they not satisfy what they're doing. And it's totally changed their lifestyle. So they try to get a better position or better status to their business or incomes and better life. It's a departure for bagels to be made by non-Jews. That's certainly true. Veteran baker Mark Furstenberg offers three kinds of bagels at Bread First in northwest D.C. It is not a departure, however, for Koreans to take possession of a business that previously belonged to Jews. After all, Koreans, I suppose, are best known, at least in Washington, for having opened dry cleaning establishments and liquor stores, both of which were ways that Jews entered America. 
when I was in high school, my best friend's fathers owned liquor stores in Baltimore, or they bought dry cleanings. Now those small businesses are passing on to Koreans and, and other newly arrived Americans. Everything they got. You want to toast it? Sue Hopkins emigrated from Korea to Kentucky decades ago, but it wasn't until she moved to Washington in the early 1990s that she tried a bagel, and it was love at first bite. When I got here, loved it. What's your favorite? Everything bagel or cheddar bagel. So it worked out nicely that in 2011, Hopkins bought this place, K Street Bagel and Cafe, from a fellow Korean immigrant. I was to own it something like this, because I love to give and I love to see the people, you know, people's person, I guess you could say. Not only that, she says. But D.C. is the place to have the restaurant or deli whatsoever, right? So it's not that I want to own the deli. It's just opportunity. Of course, it can also be a lot of work. Nowadays, many bagelries, Korean-owned or not, use frozen dough from a distributor and rely on machines to shape their bagels. But at Sue Hopkins' shop, everything is from scratch. We make our bagel every day. One of few stores. I get the satisfaction out of it one day. He said, oh, it was really good, and that's it. That made my day. Sue Hopkins has three children. The oldest helps out in the store a couple times a week. Monday and Friday. Helps a great deal. So it's pretty much a family affair here, as it is half a dozen blocks north at Bagels Etc. on P Street. Su Chan Kang is 35 years old. His parents, David and Judy, have owned Bagels Etc. for went on 28 years. Though, like Sue Hopkins and Yosup Lee, the Kangs knew nothing about bagels when they immigrated to America in the early 1980s. The first couple years, they bounced around working little jobs and I think they heard like deli and bagel shops are doing well so they tried and it worked like it's still here and it's doing a pretty brisk business among locals and tourists alike do you find that you get a lot of regular customers on the weekdays it's majority regulars we know them by their first name and we know what they want before they come in the door and that's one of Su Chan Kang's favorite things about working at his parents' store, and one of the reasons he hopes to take it over once they retire. I didn't want this place to like just sell it. This is a waste. What do you think? Almost 30 years and just let it go. Under his ownership, he says, Bagels Etc. might start up online ordering for customers, maybe even delivery service. But the bagels would remain the same. These chewy, doughy delicacies that, whether in the hands of Eastern Europeans or Northeast Asians, just keep rolling on. We'll turn now from bagels to another round treat, this one decidedly more decadent. Donuts. We've been seeing a bit of a donut renaissance in the D.C. area of late, with new shops cropping up all across the region. Stephen Yenzer takes us to Frederick, Maryland, where traditional yeast-fried donuts are getting a major makeover. Let me start by telling you that I'm a vegan. That means I don't eat any animal products. Obviously, meat is off the table, but also cheese, milk, eggs, even honey. And donuts, everyone's favorite calorie-packed breakfast treat, were once off-limits. That's until I met Kirsten. My name is Kirsten Strader. And her wife, Alyssa. My name is Alyssa Strader. Alyssa and Kirsten are the co-owners of Glory Donuts, 
a Frederick bakery specializing in elaborate, decadent, and incidentally vegan donuts. Glory Donuts doesn't have a traditional storefront. They rent a kitchen in Frederick and spend weekend nights and mornings cooking. And that's where I find myself at 6.30 on a Saturday morning, watching the two cut and fry a few dozen donuts. I was glad to wake up at 5.30 to make the trek. Vegan donuts are almost impossible to find around here. But Kirsten and Alyssa have been cooking since 3 a.m. So we are still a pretty small business. We currently utilize just three KitchenAid, like, eight-quart stand mixers. Um, So no big mixer here. And then the stovetop frying... Again, because we don't have a frying set up here in this kitchen we rent. Um, so it is labor-intensive and time-intensive, and a lot of love and patience goes into each donut. And these donuts aren't just your traditional glazed or chocolate-covered. Well, one that we're making today is a bourbon cream-filled, which is really popular. We also have a sweet tea glaze. Chai tea frosted is very popular. Strawberry sriracha, we bust out sometimes at like festivals and events, so it's like a spicy strawberry. It's really cool. Um, what else would you say, Kiris? What are some more crazy ones? The carnival, it's, um, kettle popcorn, peanuts, sprinkles, um, chocolate ganache. It's really good. Okay, I know what you're thinking. Isn't vegan food supposed to be healthy? That's the thing, is yes, it is supposed to be healthy, but... Um, I think a lot of vegans miss comfort foods, and this is just one of those guilty pleasures. I mean, you know, who doesn't love a donut? And just to avoid scaring off any omnivores, you won't find the word vegan in big, bold letters on the Glory Donuts booth. We don't really advertise, per se, that we're vegan. Like, we're not out there being like, hey, we're vegan, come try vegan donuts. We like to rope them in and then advertise it after the fact. Like, oh, that was really good. Okay, yeah, that was vegan. (laughs) So just how do they make these traditionally egg and dairy-filled treats vegan? Well, the egg-replacing ingredient in Glory Donuts is apparently top secret. But Alyssa says it took quite a while to perfect. It was really hard. We started making the donuts, and then we completely changed the recipe after, what, like four months? We changed it. I think we changed it two or three times. I think this is the third dough recipe that we landed on um, just due to consistency and fluffiness and, you know, how it fries. We like our donuts to be slightly crispy on the outside and really airy and puffy on the inside. So it was important to us that we kind of captured that. Of course, I can't just take Alyssa's word for it. It's time to embark on the most challenging part of this story. We have our traditional cinnamon sugar twist. It's a pretty recognizable twist shape um, with organic cinnamon sugar coating. And then we have a key lime pie, which is a pretty tart, pretty limey um, key lime filling covered in glaze. And then pie crust crumbs. And then we do a cool green glaze on top of that, so it's pretty nifty looking. And then we have a bourbon cream filled, which is similar to like a vanilla cream. It's light and fluffy on the inside. That's covered in fair trade chocolate ganache. All right, I think I'm going to start simple. Start with the uh, cinnamon twist. Mmm. They're so fluffy. (laughs) That's really good. That's what we've worked hard to create is that airiness, that fluffiness. Right, I think I'm going to do the bourbon. Mmm. That is super rich. That's really good. I'm going to take another bite, actually. This is a really hard story to do. <laughs> it's been really tough. 
<laughs> and with that, it's time for Alyssa and Kirsten to deliver the morning's batch of donuts, and time for me to head home for a nap. I'm Steven Yenzer. <laughs> While we can't offer you a taste of those key lime and bourbon chocolate confections, we can offer you a sneak peek. You can see photos from Stephen's visit to Glory Donuts on our website, metroconnection.org. When you walk the streets, you'll have no cares. If you walk the lines and not the squares, as you go through life, make this your goal. Watch the donut, not the hole. break the secret behind dc's special sauce it's not barbecue sauce and it's not ketchup it's a combination of something it's coming your way on metro connection here on wamu 88.5 wamu news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by matthew watson in memory of marjorie watson and support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. This week, it's our annual homage to the region's culinary culture, a show we call Down the Hatch. And our next story is about a quintessential food here in the nation's capital, mumbo sauce, or mambo sauce, depending whom you ask. But both names mean the same thing, a classic tangy topping that Washingtonians layer on just about anything, especially fried chicken. Emily Berman brings us the story behind the sauce. David Gay is a regular at Smokey's, a carryout restaurant in Petworth. He comes here two or three times a week. Sauce on the potatoes, sauce on the chicken, sauce all around. He studies his wings and fries carefully, applying the sauce with near scientific focus. Mumbo size. Gay's friend, Willie Antrim Jr., has also been coming here for fried wings and mumbo sauce for nearly two decades. But if you ask him to describe the flavor, what's in it, that sort of thing... He's stumped. I don't know what it tastes like. It's not barbecue sauce. and It, it don't taste like it. it's not barbecue sauce and it's not ketchup. It's a combination of something. David Gay also has no idea what's in it. The secret. My secret. <laughs> They're crazy about. Angela Lee has owned Smokies for 20 years and worked here for 10 years before that. She is in charge of the mumbo sauce. And not even her waitresses know exactly what she puts in it. They know what I'm doing, but they don't know exactly what I'm doing. Back in the kitchen, she offers to mix up a batch for us, revealing once and for all the recipe for this secret sauce. Okay, I put some amount of sugar already here. Okay. And then this is a black sauce, but I mixed it already. She dumps a small amount of dark liquid into a bowl. It looks a lot like soy sauce. No. Never soy sauce, no. No, 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 no. So, so far we have a secret amount secret of sugar, amount secret of sugar. vinegar, <laughs> secret black yeah, sauce. Yeah, okay. Competition now, now, so I have to be careful. <laughs> Add that to two gallons of store-bought barbecue sauce, and there you have it, mumbo sauce. Smokey serves three to four gallons of the stuff a day. 
And though it's popular here and at many other carryouts in the city, it's unclear whether it's truly unique to our region. Hi, my name is Doreen Thompson. I grew up in Chicago. Thompson is a culinary historian and says as much as we'd like to claim it, mumbo sauce is not from D.C. I live three blocks away from RGB's barbecue restaurant. Thompson recalls seeing a big sign for the rib joint on Chicago's south side and its signature mumbo sauce. The sauce was invented around 1950 by an African-American restaurateur named Argia B. Collins Sr., Argia B. for short. At a time when there were few products made by African-Americans on grocery store shelves, he got it into several stores around the city. So when Doreen Thompson moved to Washington after law school and encountered mumbo sauce, this allegedly local specialty, she made it her mission to correct this misinformation. Oh, I would get into knockdown, drag out arguments about it. And one friend says, but I can remember 1970 something. And I say, this is 1950 something, you know, and then they'd get kind of, kind of quiet. Mumbo sauce is definitely from Chicago, Thompson says, and RGB's family is protecting the name. They've gone after a company formerly known as Capital City Mumbo Sauce for infringing on their trademark and won. Though, according to Doreen Thompson, the sauce you find in D.C. is not quite as dark and not quite as thick as RGB's Mumbo Sauce. I think what we've gotten caught up in is somebody liked the name. And who'd want to change it? Mambo doesn't quite have that same ring. Back at Smokey's, the pressure cooker is frying up some wings for Ernest Graves, who lives nearby. If I get a chance to come to lunch, this would be the first place I'd go, because I always think about mumbo sauce all the time. Not the orange and clumpy stuff of other carryouts, he says, but the smooth, secret recipe at Smokey's. Some days, he comes for breakfast and lunch. On the weekends, like Sunday, they're not open on Sunday. If I don't get it that Saturday, I'd be in trouble. Graves' order is ready, and he heads over to the mumbo station to load up. Though it may not have originated here, Washington's mumbo tradition runs deep. Ernest Graves, for one, doesn't care where it came from. Chicago, the moon, wherever. For him, and perhaps a whole lot of Washingtonians, it's the sauce that makes living in this city so sweet. I'm Emily Berman. Where do you satisfy your mumbo sauce cravings? Send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro, and we'll add your favorite spot to our mumbo map. You can find it on our website, metroconnection.org. We turn now from food to drink and a cocktail that's been shaking things up in D.C. this summer, the Brazilian Caparina. And with Brazil playing host to the World Cup in June and July, Washingtonians have been raising glasses of lime, sugar, ice, and the Brazilian liquor cachaça all over town. Lauren Landau met up with two local mixologists to learn more. Got two ounces there. And we are going to shake this. Wallback Pacrovan is head bartender at Seva, a contemporary Latin American restaurant near Metro Center. Wallback has been bartending in D.C. since 1997, but before he joined the team at Seva four years ago, he'd never even heard of cachaça. I had no idea. How would I hear about it, you know? Because you go to your neighborhood bar or whatever, and 
Back then, nobody was like, hey, try this cachaça. He now works with cachaça on a daily basis, mixing up caparinas and experimenting by inventing his own cocktails. But what is cachaça? Cachaça technically is a clear distillate that they get from sugarcane. So that's why they call it Brazilian rum, because rum comes from sugarcane. Most rum comes from sugarcane. But there's no molasses added to cachaça, so it is clear. They do an aged cachaça, so that's barrel aged, but that's more like an after-dinner drink, like a cognac or something that you would sip on afterwards. Last year, the federal government officially recognized the liquor as a distinctive product of Brazil. And Brazil, in turn, recognized bourbon whiskey and Tennessee whiskey as distinctive products of the United States. Since then, the American market for cachaça has expanded, and so has the stock at Seba. When the restaurant first opened in 2003, it carried only two kinds of cachaça. Now there are seven varieties here, including two barrel-aged versions added just this year. Most of Seba's cachaça is sold in Caparinas, and lately, Bobak has been making a lot of them. Cachaça is having a major boom right now, and the World Cup is a big catalyst for that. At the end of the day, you're talking about some sugar, some lime juice, and a very interesting distillate that has a unique flavor. It's not vodka, it's not rum, but if you mix those two sort of together, you're in between there. It's a good binder, and it's summer, so it's refreshing. Caparinas are a staple of Seba's happy hour menu. And during the World Cup, guests paid just five bucks to sip on the Brazilian national cocktail. Seba saw its cachaça sales shoot up by 18%. Before the World Cup, people see it on the menu like, oh, what's that? Let me try that. But during the World Cup, thanks to social media, Instagram, Twitter, everything, people are very knowledgeable about Brazilian food. We had street food going on here as well and other Brazilian drinks. Everybody came in here knowing what a Caprini was, but they had not had it before, so they were willing to try it. He says that element of novelty is driving the Caprini's surge in popularity, especially with DC's younger crowd. I know people that are like starting rum collections or wine collections, and as early as 22. You know, back in my day, that was unheard of, you know. 22-year-old didn't think about collecting rums or wines. So, yeah, absolutely. It's a more educated consumer, and because of that, all these spirits, there's room for everyone. For the World Cup, Bobak created a cocktail called the Nutmeg, using cachaça that he barrel-aged in-house. The drink was so popular that Seba is keeping it on the summer cocktail menu. He says he's seeing more cachaça being used around town, and not just at establishments like the Grill from Ipanema, a Brazilian restaurant in Adams Morgan. He says his colleagues in other bars are doing their best to come up with innovative, creative ways of using the liquor. Roofers Union is not a South American place, and they had a swirling machine of Caparinas. And that's how you know that it's in the mainstream. When you go to Adams Morgan and there's a swirling machine of frozen Caparinas, does it get more mainstream than that? A few miles southeast of Seba, Gina Chersavani is mixing drinks at Hanks on the Hill. The seasoned mixologist or mixtress says while you can get caparinas in D.C., it's not exactly a widespread trend, at least not here in Capitol Hill, where people are more likely to order whiskey than rum. But isn't it strange that you're in the same city and you think it's all the same pool, but where you are in conjunction to what you do is what you sell? 
Where do you think people are ordering Cabarinas? U Street, more diversity. Like, the more they diversify the crowd. I mean, think about it. Like, U Street is such a great flair of Latin culture as well as African-American, Ethiopian. So they're going to drink more things, you know, more inclined to drink rum, especially the Caribbean bars. While the average person might be familiar with Caparinas, when it comes to cachaça, Gina says they don't know if they want it aged or unaged. And it's not uncommon for people to ask for a Caparina made with spiced rum which at that point isn't technically a Caparina. Most people order drinks when they come in here and they'll say, I'll have a Manhattan. They don't know what they want in it, though. They don't know if they want a rye or a bourbon or, you know, Rob Roy or whatever. They don't know what they want. They just know that they want that name of a drink. She says from an educational perspective, it's going to be up to the bartenders to clue people in. I think that it is a great cocktail, and I think it's well enjoyed. I think it's something you have to ask for, and maybe not every bartender is going to have, like, everything that you need to do it. But the more that the public asks for something, it's more become readily available. Gina would love to see more aged cachaças available in the States. She says having more varieties of liquor available makes mixing cocktails that much better. And it's not a bad thing when it comes to drinking them either. I'm Lauren Landau. knock on a few doors with our ongoing journey around the region. This week on Door to Door, we'll visit Wheaton, Maryland and the U Street area of Northwest D.C. My name is Marion Fryer. I'm 76 years old and I live in Wheaton, Maryland for 37 years. Wheaton has always been a neighbor, kind of a neighborhood to me because it's small. The footprint is small. It's not like Silver Spring, Rockville, or Bethesda in terms of, you know, the people and in terms of the businesses. We have some of the most unique businesses in Wheaton that you won't find anyplace else. Over the last, I'd say, 10, 15 years, we have had a lot of change in terms of demographics, in terms of ethnicities. We have a lot of wonderful new neighbors who are from all different countries now. Everything I need is right here in Wheaton. Shopping, my church is here, and there are a lot of unique, I would say, religious organizations to meet everybody's needs. I think one of the unique things about Wheaton is that we, we are diverse, but we do a lot of things together. My name is Zara Jelani, and I live right here on U Street. U Street goes from about U and 16th Street to about U and 7th or 8th. The landscape is just very, very vibrant. Um, it's filled with many, many people of different cultures. And our major landmark, of course, near the metro station, is the African American Civil War Memorial. Until 1920, U Street was the largest urban African American population in the entire United States. I really, really love U Street and I love living here. We get so much more than you get from just coming on a night out. I love it because it's a center of the arts, music, and DC culture. 
Next time you come to U Street for a good time and a late night out, keep in mind the significance of the streets you're walking in and the heritage that lies within them. We heard from Marion Fryer in Wheaton and Zara Jelani on U Street. If you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, let us know. You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at wamumetro. In a minute. It's easy. It will hold up well in a hot Maryland summer, and it's delicious, so why not? (laughs) We'll whip up a long-forgotten Maryland specialty, which may or may not involve muskrat. Seriously. That and more is just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're going down the hatch with our annual show about all things edible and drinkable in the D.C. region. And we'll kick off this part of the show. I have everything set up. How exciting! Oh my goodness. In Annapolis, Maryland. Oh, this is going to be fun. In the kitchen of food historian Joyce White. Get back on. This oven takes a while. It makes a crazy noise, and I can't get rid of it. (laughs) White is preheating her oven to bake a Maryland specialty many folks have never tasted, let alone heard of, white potato pie. What part of Maryland does it come from? from Eastern Shore. Do you know how far back in time it goes? Well, you know, it's interesting because I found a recipe from the 17th century, a British recipe, but it was not just a sweet pie. Like this potato pie is like a pumpkin pie in that it has sweet spices like cinnamon, nutmeg. It can have things like lemon. But this other recipe I found combines the sweet as well as bone marrow and vinegar, which is almost more of a medieval. We're not going. We're not going medieval today. We're right? not going medieval. Okay. No, no, no. We're doing the. <laughs> we're, no bone marrow here. White recently finished curating a Maryland food exhibit for the soon-to-open Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. She's also been traveling to local museums, libraries, senior centers, and other venues to present what she calls a taste of Maryland. It's about an hour-long presentation, and I have about four to six different things to taste. From familiar favorites like crabs and Smith Island cake to lesser-known treats like the custardy concoction we're following the recipe for today. Let's see, it says cream potatoes, cream and eggs, and sugar. I want to get us splashed. <laughs> After whisking in cinnamon, nutmeg, vanilla, and lemon, we pour the filling into a homemade crust. Hopefully it will fit. It's a little lumpy. And put the pie in the oven. Okay, so we will set that for an hour. Great. Okay. While we wait for it to bake... Oh, it smells so good in here. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing better than pastry. <laughs> we tidy up our mess and dish about some other edibles associated with the old line state, including some that, well, sort of kind of shouldn't be. The Lady Baltimore cake is something that is supposed to be associated with Maryland, but is really not. It was a book written um, by Owen Wister, who wrote The Virginian. He wrote this book called Lady Baltimore, and I believe it was 1906, and talked about the Lady Baltimore Tea Room set in Charleston, South Carolina, for which they made the Lady Baltimore cake. 
So it's not till after the book is published that you start seeing Lady Baltimore cakes coming out of Maryland. And a Lady Baltimore cake is really just a yellow cake with seven-minute boiled icing that usually has dried fruits and nuts in it. So I'm um, speaking of cakes... Listeners should know that the way you and I originally connected was I was looking for lesser-known Maryland foods on the Internet, and I came across something called a Kosuth cake. And I sent out a bunch of emails to people I thought might know something about it, and you wrote me back. Um, At that point, you didn't know much about it either, but I know you've done some research since then. So tell us about the mysterious Kosuth cake. Well, the Kosuth cake is something that evidently used to be a tradition in Maryland, or a more widely known tradition in Maryland. Um, and it goes back to 1851 when an anonymous confectioner in East Baltimore created this cake in honor of Louis Kosuth, who was a Hungarian freedom fighter, essentially. And he led a revolt in 1848 against Austrian rule. And then he was governor of Hungary for a short time until the Russians interceded and helped the um, Austrians regain control. This is the history that I've read so far. I'm not an expert on Austria-Hungary relations, but he's governor in Hungary. The Russians oust him, and he comes to America to raise awareness for his cause, but also to raise money. All I can understand is that he raised only $25 when he came to the United States. But he did have a cake named after him. And the cake is essentially a Charlotte Russe, this layered molded dish of ladyfingers and Bavarian cream. So what are some some savory foods that have come to be associated with Maryland, either in the popular mind or way back when? Oh, the muskrat. (laughs) (laughs) Muskrats. Again, another Eastern Shore favorite food. Well, I don't know how favorite it is with everybody, but at least it's traditional. In the 1930s during the Depression, when people were struggling to make a living, one of the ways that you could supplement your income was to sell muskrat pelts. Um, so instead of getting rid of the meat, it's perfectly good meat, so people would eat the muskrat meat. And it was traditionally like stewed with sage and onion. And then in 1938 in Church Creek, Maryland, they started having the National Muskrat Skinning Contest every year. And they still have it every year. And they have a muskrat cooking contest as well. So definitely a part of Maryland tradition. And Maryland stuffed ham. I don't know if you're familiar with that as well. This is something people either love it or hate it. It's, it's really, it's a brined ham. And you take the bone out, and then you replace that with a mixture of cabbage and or kale, onions, things like that, even some like spicy hot peppers. And then you tie it all together, wrap it in a bag, and boil it. And it's usually served at Easter time. And it really comes out of the St. Mary's County area. So I want to move back to desserts and sweets for a second. What about the Maryland cookie? I was in Iceland not too long ago, and there were all these stores selling these packs of chocolate chip cookies called Maryland Cookies. What's the deal there? It's funny. Um, I've known about Maryland Cookies, which are a British product, uh, for years. And um, I've called Burton Foods, Burton Biscuit Company, I should say, which is the manufacturer of these cookies, and they haven't given me a whole lot of interest. But I, I started getting even more interested in them lately because online you can do those BuzzFeed quizzes or they have results of quizzes. Well, they had one on, uh, it was a, a map of the United States, which each state was highlighted, what foreigners most closely associate with each state. And wouldn't you know it, in Maryland it was cookies. And it turns out that the Maryland cookie is the sixth best-selling cookie in the United Kingdom. And the recipe, as far as I can tell, goes back to 1956 by an American, but I cannot confirm whether this person was a Marylander or not. But I find it really fascinating that this cookie is named after Maryland. And then we've got, let's see, the oven's ready. (laughs) Um, That's adorable. 
It's annoying. It's, <laughs> that's what it is. Well, I got to put this mic down because I got to dig into this white potato pie. So this is the part where I turn it off. <laughs> Joyce White is the guest curator of the Maryland State Exhibit at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, opening this September in New Orleans. And if you want a taste of that white potato pie, we have the recipe. Just go to our website, metroconnection.org. So we just heard the scoop on classic Maryland foods. What we haven't yet explored are the beverages associated with the Old Line State. You've got the official state drink, milk, the classic Preakness cocktail, the Black Eyed Susan. But then you have a libation that was once a very big deal in Maryland. And some folks on the Eastern Shore are working hard to bring it back. Lion Distilling is the new brainchild of former currency trader Ben Lyon and his partner, photographer Jamie Winden. Lauren Ober caught up with the couple recently to talk and drink a little rye whiskey. First, a quick lesson in farming. Back in the day, Maryland grew a whole lot of tobacco. And while tobacco might be great for the economy, it does a number on the soil. Uh, tobacco plants naturally just deplete the soil of nitrogen. The way you replenish that is to plant rye, and often it was grown as a cover crop in the winter. That's Ben Lyon. As the head booze hound at Lyon Distilling, he knows a little something about rye. And so you would have all this rye that had been planted over the winter, and then part of it would get plowed under. The other part would be obviously harvested and then turned into something. And of course, there's only so much rye bread that you can eat. And so the other part of that would go to, ended up going to making whiskey. And this rye whiskey was special. Unlike most ryes, the Maryland version uses less of the grain. The liquor is about 60 percent rye. The rest of the spirit is made of corn and a little bit of malted barley. This gives the liquor a softer, smoother taste than other popular ryes of the time. What you had was those desirable qualities of rye, where you're getting kind of that spicy floral character. Um, You get a little bit of depth and sweetness that comes naturally um, from that grain but in kind of a measured way. Before Prohibition and just after, Maryland distilleries cranked out the stuff. In 1936, Maryland led the nation in rye production. But times and tastes change, and by the 1970s, Maryland rye had fallen off the map. In part, you can blame the James Bond cocktail phenomenon. Vodka and gin had started to become extremely popular at the time. And so people were sort of looking at rye as... Well, you know, it's like grandpa's whiskey. You know, I want something new and fresh and cool. And and the other thing is, vodka and gin are a little bit easier to drink for the untrained palate. And so people were getting out of rye. Today, there's only one distiller in the state making Maryland rye. And that's Ben Lyon. With his partner, Jamie Winden, Lyon opened his operation at the end of 2013 It's only the second new craft distillery to open in Maryland in four decades. With his ingenious creativity, he kind of laid out a very rough sketch of, we could do it for very little. I can build everything except for the stills, and I want to do small stills. I want to do things that are a little off the radar. Those off-the-radar spirits include three types of rum, a Maryland rye, and a 100-proof corn whiskey that's basically moonshine. Lion and Winden make fewer than 100 bottles of liquor a week, And they're happy keeping it small. There wasn't any kind of 
thought about, okay, this is going to become the next, you know, Bacardi or Grey Goose or something crazy like that. I mean, that was never, that was never the goal. That was never the idea. The old flour mill that now serves as the distillery is huge with soaring ceilings. Big drums of fermenting mash bubble on one side of the room. Caddy corner are the copper pot stills where the alcohol is distilled. After checking on some fermenting liquid that will soon become rum, Lion grinds some malted rye with a grinder he jury-rigged himself. The idea is that we're sort of gently grinding up the malt, connected to our homebrew malt grinder, yeah. Like brewers, distillers are using all kinds of malts to bring out different flavors in their spirits. This one is a chocolate rye malt. So it's actually malted rye that was then toasted to bring out sort of these, you know, I mean, you can almost smell it, and it smells a little bit chocolatey, kind of malty, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and it's really cool stuff. And so when in the distillate, you know, unlike in a rye beer, this will actually bring out sort of one really deep rye characteristic, but it also sort of adds the perception of age to the spirit. While Lion grinds the rye malt, Winden bottles rum. Here we're doing the dark rum right now. So bottled the white rum this morning, and then the dark rum, he uses these brew pots to slow cook a sugar into a caramel. And so it just gets a touch of that and then goes in the bottles. And since no trip to a distillery is complete without sampling the wares, we head back to the tasting room to try some of Lion's offerings. This is the precious barrel number one of the Maryland rye. So okay. this, is, this is really special stuff. Okay. All right. Now what will we be experiencing here? So you're going to get that, that typical sort of slightly sweet, spicy grain characteristic from the rye. Some sort of slight floral notes, but then sort of rounding it out with that grainy barley characteristic, as well as a little bit of a sweetness and sort of a more mellow note from the corn. The rye spice comes across as a smoky finish, assertive but not overpowering. It's easy to see how this drink once put Maryland on the spirits map and just maybe could do so again. I'm Lauren Ober. Folks at Lion Distilling have put together a series of cocktail recipes featuring Maryland rye whiskey. You can get in touch with your inner mixologist by checking them out on our website, metroconnection.org. Rye whiskey makes the best sound better, makes your baby cuter, makes yourself taste sweeter. Oh boy, rye whiskey makes your heart beat louder, makes your a few miles up the road from Lion Distilling is the town of Easton, Maryland. While many people stop in Easton to enjoy the historic homes and acclaimed art museum, beach-bound tourists often zoom right past the place, never knowing that just a few miles off the main road, there is some serious eating to be had. Easton's food scene is on the rise, and a local husband and wife have begun offering tours, highlighting the town's culinary bounty. Tara Boyle tagged along on one of those tours and brings us this story. So this is a story about food, but first, it's a story about booze. Um, is there anybody that would not care to try the rosé or... No? Okay, good. That's good. I like this. I like you guys. It's 11.30 in the morning, and a half dozen people are taking part in this food tour put together by a new organization called Eating Easton. 
We're in the dining room of Out of the Fire, a restaurant in the historic downtown. Amy Haynes is the owner. Well, I, I haven't gotten feedback from them about me serving wine and, and, and cocktails at 1130 as to whether it affects the rest of the tour. So. Oh, it's a great way to start out. Okay, Everyone okay. is so happy. That second voice belongs to Kathy Bernard, an Eating Easton co-founder and tour guide. And she's right. Everyone is so happy as they sniff and swirl and sip their wine. They get even happier when the food arrives. Today we're going to do some house-made ciabatta with some um, goat cheese, some house-made tomato jam, and then finish with a little basil. The verdict? That is really good. As we eat, Amy Haynes gives us a quick spiel about her restaurant. So I've been in business for 14 years, and um, my mission is to try to support as many local and organic producers and as many small businesses as I possibly can. Um, After a bit of Q&A, we're off to our next destination. As we walk, I ask Kathy Bernard how this enterprise got started. Well, my husband and I, a few years ago, we went to, we were visiting San Diego and ran into these foodie tours and we thought, this is just perfect. It's perfect for our little town and it would be a great way to bring awareness and bring people in and help drive business to our restaurants and our stores and that kind of thing. Both Kathy and her husband, Bill, are wearing Eating Easton t-shirts and carrying big signs attached to wooden sticks, just like the guides you might see on the National Mall. You'd never know they came up with this idea for a food tour of Easton less than two months ago. My husband is quite an entrepreneur, and he has a consulting business, management consulting business, so he's very, very busy. And um, I work full-time as well, and he decided that, you know, instead of taking on another client, I'll take this on as a client, basically, and really try to build it out. So far, it seems to be working. It's attracting both tourists and locals, like Paul Sharp and his wife, Peggy. We are foodies. (laughs) And I love, I have a garden, I love to cook, and we love to go out and eat, and the restaurants here in this area are just outstanding. So it was like, why not? (laughs) Our second stop on the tour is a stately buttercup yellow mansion called the Inn at 202 Dover. And this, everyone, is 202 Dover. (laughs) We're welcomed in by owners Ron and Shelby Mitchell, who serve up neon blue cocktails and generous servings of foie gras topped with microgreens. Next, we head to the kitchen, where chef Doug Potts slides mini crab cakes off a cooking pan and onto our plates. The second dish that I'm getting ready to prepare for you now is a crab cake dish with corn mock chu. Uh, mock chu is a version of Cajun Creole creamed corn. It takes about two hours to just make that. We demolish his hard work within seconds. As the group wanders off to explore the inn, I ask Chef Potts, an Eastern Shore native, how he's seen the food scene here change. There's only a handful of restaurants up until about 10 years ago, maybe a little bit longer, 12 years ago, other than on the highway. And um, the scene's really evolved, and and there's quite a bit. And not to mention you have St. Michael's and Oxford, which are really close. I mean, you know, 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there. So within that little triangle area, there's there's some really strong chefs and great restaurants. And, And I think it's, you know, it could be a destination for people who want food, good food. More good food is just around the corner at our third stop on the tour, the Bartlett Pear Inn. Yeah, cool. Welcome. What's happening? (laughs) 
Jordan Lloyd is the chef and owner. He's wearing shorts and a hoodie and a broad smile. Forgive my attire. I just got off the garden. Um, so I usually do a lot of our garden gardening um, on these mornings. Um, Lloyd trained at Citronelle in D.C. and per se in New York. But it's back here in his hometown that he truly honed his passion for food. It was my, my hometown that really kind of instilled the importance of uh, buying local and working for your community and, you know, the whole farm-to-table concept as we see it. Um, you know, it doesn't stop at just the ingredients, but it's really like, you know, bringing the, the community into your business and putting your business back into the community. And it's that whole, you know, kind of symbiotic relationship. And buying local is what the next stop on our tour is all about. Inside a renovated brick building known as Market Square, vendors sell local delights like juicy red tomatoes and vibrant orange squash. We chow down on barbecued brisket sandwiches and chilled cucumber avocado soup. It's hard to believe we still have two more stops on this tour. Oh my goodness, I'm start, I feel like I've reached the waddling stage. <laughs> <laughs> we waddle to the Washington Street Pub for three little pigs. Sandwiches made of ground wild boar, pulled pork, and bacon. They are delicious. Then we head to Scosa, an airy Italian restaurant, for fresh pasta stuffed with gorgonzola cheese. Oh my god, that is so good. We push our way back out into the sunlight, bellies first. Out-of-towners Kirby and Colleen Scott of Hagerstown are all smiles. One of the greatest things about this was that a lot of times when we find ourselves going to a new town, we don't know where to eat, and we don't know a lot of the history. And so this combines both, so it was really a great experience. The Scots say they still aren't ready to declare any of the restaurants on today's tour their favorite in Easton. But they're looking forward to trying them, again and again, until they're ready to make that assessment. I'm Tara Boyle. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Lauren Ober, Emily Berman, Tara Boyle, and Lauren Landau, along with reporter Stephen Yenzer. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our interns are Julie Alderman and Lindsay Sperber. Though we're actually saying goodbye to the latter this week as Lindsay sets off to, no doubt, take over the radio world. Thanks so much, Lindsay, for all your hard work. And a big thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. We have information about all of our music on metroconnection.org. Just click a story for information about its accompanying song. You can also hear the entire show on our website by clicking This Week on Metro Connection, or you can subscribe to our podcast. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week for our annual nod to Summertime in Washington, a show we call Feeling the Heat. We'll go island hopping without leaving D.C. We'll learn how to stay extra safe when the mercury soars, and we'll hear how urban farms are rising to the challenge of climate change. We need to just allow the land to give us and to nourish it so it can nourish us. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.